All right, well, welcome back to our study in systematic theology. Tonight we are looking at uh, part 39 of our 60-part series. We're looking specifically at election and reprobation. Uh, Next time we'll be looking at effectual calling, just so you uh, can be prepared. But we're going to follow kind of our usual format. Um, I'm going to introduce this topic by reading a... uh, an article that kind of goes along with our video and study, um, and it's specifically about what uh, what is the view of uh, the reformed view of predestination. And then after we pause and watch our, our video, then we'll come back and go through our overview, and we'll finish it up by looking at what's in our confession uh, on this topic. I do have a secondary article. I don't know if we'll have time to get to it, but I printed it out just in case um, because the first article is kind of lengthy. But, you know, after we finish our overview, if, if you guys think we have time and want to go through the second article, we can. It, it kind of just goes a little deeper uh, into um, one of the topics we discuss here. All right, so let's, uh, let's read this one. In the Reformed view, God from all eternity decrees some to election and positively intervenes in their lives to work regeneration and faith by a monergistic work of grace. To the non-elect, God withholds this monergistic work of grace, passing them by and leaving them to themselves. He does not monergistically work sin or unbelief in their lives. Even in the case of the quote-unquote hardening of the sinner's already recalcitrant hearts, God does not, as Luther stated, work evil in us, for hardening is working evil, by creating fresh evil in us. Luther continued, When men hear us say that God works both good and evil in us, and that we are subject to God's working by mere passive necessity, they seem to imagine a man who is in himself good and not evil having an evil work wrought in him by God. For they do not sufficiently bear in mind how incessantly active God is in all his creatures, allowing none of them to keep holiday. He who would understand these matters, however, should think thus, God works evil in us, that is, by means of us, not through God's own fault, but by reason of our own defect. We being evil by nature and God being good, when he impels us to act by his own acting upon us according to the nature of his omnipotence, good though he is in himself, he cannot but do evil by our evil instrumentality. Although according to his wisdom, he makes good use of this evil for his own glory and for our salvation. Thus the mode of operation in the lives of the elect is not parallel with the operation in the lives of the reprobate. God works generation monergistically, but never sin. Sin falls within the category of providential concurrence. Another significant difference between the activity of God with respect to the elect and the reprobate concerns God's justice. The decree of fulfillment of election provides mercy for the elect, while the efficacy of reprobation provides justice for the reprobate. God shows mercy sovereignly and unconditionally to some and gives justice to those passed over in election. That is to say, God grants the mercy of election to some and justice to others. No one is the victim of injustice. 
To fail to receive mercy is not to be treated unjustly. God is under no obligation to grant mercy to all. In fact, he is under no obligation to grant mercy to any. He says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, Romans 9. The divine prerogative to grant mercy voluntarily cannot be faulted. If God is required by some cosmic law apart from himself to be merciful to all men, then we would have to conclude that justice demands mercy. If that is so, then mercy is no longer voluntary, but required. If mercy is required, it is no longer mercy, but justice. What God does not, to, <clears throat> what God does not do is sin by visiting injustice upon the reprobate. Only by considering election and reprobation as being asymmetrical in terms of a positive-negative schema can God be exonerated from injustice. Then we get into a section on Reformed Confessions. I'm not going to read all the quotes from all the confessions. It's rather lengthy, but I'll read the intro and conclusion on it. By a brief... Uh, <coughs> sorry, where am I? Oh, uh, by a brief reconnaissance of Reformed Confessions and by a brief roll call of the theologians of the Reformed faith, we can readily see that double predestination has been consistently maintained along the lines of a positive-negative schema. And it mentioned quotes from multiple um, confessions here. The Reformed Confession of 1536, the French Confession of Faith 1559, the Belgic Confession of Faith 1561, the Second Helvetic Confession 1566, and the Westminster Confession of Faith 1643. And then sums it up. These examples selected from confessional formulas of the Reformation indicate the care with which the doctrine of double predestination has been treated. The asymmetrical expression of the double aspect has been clearly maintained. This is in keeping with the care exhibited consistently throughout the history of the church. The same kind of careful delineation can be seen in Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, et al. Right now, four, um, and I didn't read them all because we we're going to look at what our confession specifically says later on election. Um, for ordination to reprobation. In spite of the distinction of positive-negative with respect to the mode of God's activity toward the elect and the reprobate, we are left with the thorny question of God's predestinating the reprobate. If God in any sense predestines or foreordains reprobation, doesn't this make the rejection of Christ by the reprobate absolutely certain and inevitable? And if the reprobate's reprobation is certain in light of predestination, doesn't this make God responsible for the sin of the reprobate? We must answer the first question in the affirmative and the second in the negative. If God for, <coughs> foreordains anything, it is absolutely certain that what he foreordains will come to pass. The purpose of God can never be frustrated. Even God's foreknowledge or pre prescience makes future events certain with respect to time. That is to say, if God knows on Tuesday that I will drive to Pittsburgh on Friday, then there is no doubt that, come Friday, I will drive to Pittsburgh. Otherwise, God's knowledge would have been an error. Yet there is a significant difference between God's knowing what I that I would drive to Pittsburgh and God's ordaining that I would do so. Theoretically, he could know of a future act without ordaining it, but he could not ordain it without knowing what it is that he is ordaining. But in either case, 
the future event would be certain with respect to time and the knowledge of God. Luther, in discussing the um, treacherous act of Judas, says, Have I not put on record in many books that I am talking about necessity of immutability? I know that the Father begets willingly and that Judas betrayed Christ willingly. My point is that this act of the will in Judas was certainly and infallibly bound to take place if God foreknew it. That is to say, if my meaning is not yet grasped, I distinguish two necessities. One I call necessity of force, referring to action. The other I call necessity of infallibility, referring to time. Let him who hears me understand that I am speaking of the latter, not the former. That is, I am not discussing whether (coughs) Judas became a traitor willingly or unwillingly, but whether it was infallibly bound to come to pass that Judas would willingly betray Christ at a time predetermined by God. We see then that what God knows in advance comes to pass by necessity of infallibility or necessity of immutability. But what about his foreordaining or predestinating what comes to pass? If God foreordains reprobation, does this not obliterate the distinction between positive and negative and involve a necessity of force? If God foreordains reprobation, does this not mean that God forces, compels, or coerces the reprobate to sin? Again, the answer must be negative. If God, when he is decreeing reprobation, does so in consideration of the reprobates being already fallen, then he does not coerce him to sin. To be reprobate is to be left in sin, not pushed or forced to sin. If the decree of reprobation were made without a view to the fall, then the objection to double predestination would be valid, and God would be properly charged with being the author of sin. But Reformed theologians have been careful to avoid such a blasphemous notion. Burkauer states the boundaries of the discussion clearly. On the one hand, we want to maintain the freedom of God in election, and on the other hand, we want to avoid any conclusion which would make God the cause of sin and unbelief. God's decree of reprobation given in light of the fall is a decree decree to justice, not injustice. In this view, the biblical uh, a priori that God is neither the cause nor author of sin is safeguarded. Turretin says, We have proved the object of predestination to be man considered as fallen. Sin ought necessarily to be supposed as the condition in him who is reprobated, no less than him who is elected. He writes elsewhere, The negative act includes, two, both <coughs> preteration, by which in the election of some as well to the glory as to grace, he neglected and slighted others, which is evident from the event of election, and negative desertion, <coughs> by which he left them in the corrupt, corrupt mass and in their misery, which, however, is as to be understood. That they are one, that they are not accepted from the laws of common providence, but remain subject to them, nor are immediately deprived of God's favor, but only of the saving and vivifying which is the fruit of election. Two, that preteration and desertion, not <clears throat> not indeed from the nature of preteration and desertion itself, and the force of the denying grace itself, but from the nature of the corrupt free will and the force of corruption in it. As he who does not care the disease of a sick man is not the cause per se of the disease, nor the results flowing from it. So sins are the consequence, 
rather than the effects of <coughs> reprobation, necessarily bringing about the fruition of the event, but, not, <coughs> but yet not infusing nor producing the wickedness. The importance of viewing the degree, decree of reprobation in light of the fall is seen in the ongoing discussions between Reformed theologians concerning infra and supralapsarianism. Both viewpoints include the fall and God's decree. Both view the decree of preteration in terms of divine permission. The real issue between the positions concerns the logical order of the decrees. In the superlapsarian view, the decree of election and reprobation is logically prior to the decree to, per, decree to permit the fall. In the infralapsarian view, the decree to permit the fall is logically prior to the decree to election and reprobation. Though this writer favors the infralapsarian view along the lines developed by Turretin, it is important to note that both views see election and reprobation in light of the fall and avoid the awful conclusion that God is the author of sin. Both views protect the boundaries Burkauer mentions. Only in a positive-positive schema of predestination does double predestination leave us with a capricious deity whose sovereign decrees manifest a divine tyranny. Reformed theology has consistently eschewed such a hyper-superlapsarianism. Opponents of Calvinism, however, persistently caricature the straw man of hyper-superlapsarianism, doing violence to the Reformed faith and assaulting the dignity of God's sovereignty. We rejoice in the biblical clarity which reveals God's sovereignty in majestic terms. We rejoice in the knowledge of divine mercy and grace that go to such extremes to redeem the elect. We rejoice that God's glory and honor are manifested both in his mercy and in his justice. All right. Told you it was a bit longer than our usual articles. <laughs> but that's a kind of a good overview, and I hope, hope it's helpful to lead us into the video in our, our future discussions. So let's pause now and watch our video. All right, we well, finished our video, and now we're going to go through our, our overview and then look at our confession as well and have some discussion. <clears throat> so if you have your sheets, you can follow along. Uh, number 39, Election and Reprobation. Introduction. Believers come face to face with the difficult doctrine of predestination when trying to understand God's decrees. Here we explore many of the challenging questions that arise when we consider the relationship between the sovereign decrees of God and salvation. Our overview. A church's doctrine of election is either the heart or the heartburn of the church. This particular doctrine is open to many distortions and must be treated with great care. From Ephesians 1, which he read from, it is clear that predestination is not something that was created by Augustine or Calvin. Any serious student of the Bible must have some doctrine of election. Election is done to the praise of God's grace and is a glorious thing. To select or to choose beforehand are behind the Greek terms sprinkled throughout the scriptures in relation to God's objects of special favor. Election means that God has contemplated the mass of fallen humanity and has decreed to save some of those sinful people. To the rest is distributed his just punishment. Indeed, God is not fair because fair would mean punishing everyone. One of the key passages explaining election is Romans 9, which he read a little bit from. 
Here Paul refers back to the entire history of redemption to prove his point about election. He specifically focuses on Abraham and his descendants. God selected prior to any bad or good works. The prescience view or foreknowledge doctrine of election is that God looks at our works and elects based on who will say yes or no to the gospel. Does the doctrine of election mean that God is unrighteous? If Paul was teaching foreknowledge election, why would we assume that this would make God unrighteous? This is one of the many critical blows to the prescience position. It is not of him who wills, but of God who shows mercy. Election is also reprobation, God's decree concerning the non-elect. Is predestination double or single? Predestination must be double or nothing. But which view, positive, positive, or positive, negative? No one gets injustice. Some get mercy, and some get justice. All right, let's look at our questions and answers, which help us remember some important points. Which phrase best summarizes the doctrine of election? To choose beforehand. Ephesians 1.4 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. How did God select people in relation to their good or bad works? Prior to their good or bad works. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. What is the view that holds that God chooses whom he will save based on his foreknowledge of whom will choose him? That's the prescient predestination. This view understands God is looking into the future and seeing who would respond to the gospel. In this view, he then chooses them based on their faith. Can the prescient view of election reasonably be used to question God's justice? No, this view holds that God's decrees is based on man's free decision, so there can be no accusation of injustice against God if one maintains this view of election. What does the doctrine of reprobation seek to understand? Whether God chooses some for condemnation. If from all eternity God decrees that some are elected to salvation, does that mean that there are some who are from all eternity elected to damnation? What question does a correct understanding of predestination raise? Is there injustice in God? Paul reminds us that predestination is not a new teaching. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Romans 9.15 It is God's sovereign and divine prerogative to dispense his grace and mercy however he chooses. Right, discussion questions. What's the definition of election? Be chosen for what? Beforehand. I know, but but to be chosen for what? Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, well, to be the elect, chosen by God. Right, but what does being elect mean? What what's your destination? What does it mean? <laughs> right, salvation, right? Yes, so. salvation. Okay. Um. What are the new what are the key New Testament passages that shed light on the doctrine of election? 
Well, he read from some of them. Do you remember? Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Romans. Yep. Romans 8 and 9. Yep. And um, if you look through just our overview, you'll even see a quote here from Titus. So there, there are several. What is the foreknowledge view of election? What does that mean, the foreknowledge view of election? That somebody that God looks into the future, monitoring and knows who is going to accept him and who is not going to accept him. Right, which is termed the prescience view. What would, I'm going to add. It also, which I don't think he really mentions, it really also denies the concept of total depravity. Right, and that was about to be my next question. So what is the problem with that view? Yeah, it's assuming that man in his own corrupt will. kind of morally neutral. He, it really denies original sin. Yeah. You know, um, and uh, man's basically good. Is he? Right. The Pelagius viewpoint. Yeah, know, it, that, it makes the assumption that there are people in their own sinful nature that would choose God, right? Right. <laughs> that's a, that's a poor assumption. If we actually, I guess Pelagius didn't even believe there was a sin nature. It was kind of like we were morally neutral. We came right. out with no form or fit or bent. And then we sort of, some of us would decide to go bad and right. some of us would decide to go good. Right. You know. We'd learn to sin or we would learn to do good works. Yeah. 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 Misunderstanding the doctrine of free will. Yeah. I mean, that's tied up in it, right? Um, does man in, since Adam, post Adam, okay, post the fall of Adam and Eve, does man have the free will on his own? To choose God. Well, if he's totally depraved, he doesn't, right? <laughs> so it requires a work of the Holy Spirit for that to happen. But to say he has the will to choose God, I, I, I don't. We have freedom mm -hmm. to act according to our sin nature. Right. We can somewhat freely choose to sin. What we can't do is to freely choose to obey God, to love God, to do what God demands. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we, have, we can choose whether to put on red socks or blue socks or... Yeah, I mean, divorce I, my wife or not divorce my <laughs> wife or yeah. Yeah, I know a lot of moral, moralistic, you know, atheists or you know, non-Christians that they live by a moral code, right? And they often choose to do, you know, things that we would consider, you know, good or righteous things, not sinful things. Um, so we absolutely have a free will to do that. All of man has a free will to do that. I think I, I, I don't know if I'm wrong, but. We got the free will, but not for just God. Because right. in our own nature, we can. Right. Because we are sinners for nature. Like, like I said in Romans chapter 1, nobody looking God. Yeah, exactly. Nobody if left to our own devices, we would never choose God ourselves. For, for that reason, I think God uh, elect us because mm -hmm. we can. 
we can by our own will. Right, and so like we we've I know we've talked about before. So even if you're even if you are elect by God, that moment that we would say salvation moment coming to Christ, what triggers that moment? Right, there has to be a working of the Holy Spirit, because if God leaves us be, we're not going to do that. <laughs> um, okay, but yeah, Don, you kind of got exactly where I was going with that. Um, why is the foreknowledge view of election difficult to explain in the light of objections Paul anticipates to his doctrine? So what's the, what's the kind of the biggest uh, objection we hear of, about this doctrine of election? He talked about it. What do, what do people so object about it? Right, in their in their view, they think of it as well. God must be unrighteous because He's arbitrarily choosing people, and that's in our human minds we would say that's not fair, right? That's not fair, <laughs> arbitrarily choosing people. But that's that's missing the point. Uh, I mean, that's kind of not looking at it properly of what justice is and the total depravity of man and what is actual fairness. Uh, fairness is when justice is served. Justice is served when sin is punished, right? So the fair thing would be for none of us to be elect. That would be the fair thing, for everyone to be condemned. So then to enter into it and say, well, he's chosen to give some mercy to some of the people. Now suddenly, is that fairness gone? I mean... I should say that you could argue, I guess, the fairness is gone, but is it suddenly, un, you know, injustice? No, because you have justice for those who are being punished for their sins, and then you have mercy for some others. So that's a blessing on top of justice. There's no injustice. But that's the objection. They say, no, it's injustice. If God elects certain people, that's injustice. You hear that. Um, that's not, a, I think, again, I think it's a, not a proper understanding of total depravity uh, to say that. It's also a rejection of God's sovereignty. Yeah, it is. Because they think, well, wait a minute, I, can, I should be able to accomplish and attain this goal. Yeah. And one, because they think they really don't have a sin nature. And two, they don't think that God as it's fair and right for God to set the rules and to choose whom he will choose. They think yeah. that that, you know. They want to work but, space salvation. What? They want to work space salvation. Well, exactly right. And with a low bar. Yeah. And we, and we live in a whole culture of, of rejecting authority, especially divine authority, right? So, yeah, they absolutely reject that, that God would have that sovereignty to, to choose. Okay, uh, before I move on to our confession, any other thoughts uh, on that? All right, um, if you have your confessions, you're welcome to open them up or you can listen along. There, I looked it up, there is a lot 
to say about election in our confession, as you can imagine, being um, reformed. So I'm not going to read all of it. That would take too long. What I will do is I'll read a few important paragraphs, and then I'll mention the other paragraphs as we go along, uh, and you can write them down or listen to the recording later if you want to go back through and, and read all the paragraphs and and especially the footnotes, the references to Scripture, right? So that would be very helpful. Just in the interest of time, I'm just going to gloss over a few of the big ones. I probably should have bookmarked these. Let's see. All right, I'm going to start in Chapter 3 of our Confession, Paragraph 6. All right, Chapter 3 is of God's Decree. So we're in Paragraph 6. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so he hath, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ, by his Spirit working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation." Neither are any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. All right, I think that's pretty clear. Paragraph, uh, continuing on in paragraph 7. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care, that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So it is a, definitely a blessing. Now, I'm going to skip over the next few paragraphs, but I will mention them if you want to look at them. You can also look at chapter 5. Paragraph 5, chapter 5 is of divine providence. Paragraph 5. You can also look at chapter 7. Chapter 7 is of God's covenant. And you can look at paragraph 3 of chapter 7. You can look at chapter 8 of Christ the mediator. Paragraph 6, chapter 8, paragraph 6. And then we move on to chapter 10 of Effectual Calling. And this I will read. I'm going to read paragraph 3 and 4. So under of Effectual Calling. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who works when and where and how he pleases. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. So that definitely speaks directly to the idea of the doctrine of election. Paragraph 4. Others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word, and may have some common operations of the spirit, yet not being, <clears throat> not being effectually drawn by the Father, they neither will nor can truly come to Christ, and therefore cannot be saved, much less can men that do not receive the Christian religion be saved. 
but they never so diligent be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess. So here we see the idea of there are those uh, reprobate or in reprobation that even you know among us or even in the churches we may appear or think that that maybe they are Christians, but um, time will tell that they actually are not. They were never were. All right, moving on to chapter eleven of justification. Looking at paragraph four, this one's uh, brief, I'll read it. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect, and Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit does in due time actually apply Christ to them. So this is what we mentioned early, earlier about the Holy Spirit having to, to work in the elect's uh, hearts there. Okay, um, skipping forward, you can, I won't read it, but you can look up later if you'd like, chapter 15 of Repentance Unto Life and Salvation, paragraph 1. Uh, I got, sorry, I got these out of order. Also, chapter 14 of Saving Faith, paragraph 1. Moving on, we'll look at chapter 17. Of the perseverance of the saints. And you can look at paragraph 1 and 2. I'm going to go ahead and read paragraph 1. Those whom God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, and given the precious faith of his elect unto, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, from which, source, <clears throat> from which source he still begets and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off of that foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon. I'll go ahead and stop there. I think we get the point. Um, so the elect uh, will indeed persevere to the end. And like I said, you can also read paragraph 2 uh, later. Moving on, uh, chapter 18 of the assurance of grace and salvation. You can read paragraph 3. Moving on to chapter 20 of the gospel and of the extent of the grace thereof. You can read paragraph 1. Moving on to chapter 26 of the church, paragraph 1. I'll go ahead and read this one. The Catholic or universal church, which, with respect to the internal work of the spirit and truth of grace, may be called invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that fits all in all. So we see here the term, the invisible church, being the whole body of the elect. All right, and then moving on, we can look at chapter 30 of the Lord's Supper, um, paragraph 2. 
You can read that if you want. And then also chapter 32 of the Last Judgment, uh, paragraph 2. I'll go ahead and read this one. The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of His mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of His justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go to go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and glory with everlasting rewards in the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast aside unto everlasting torments and punished with everlasting destruction from, <clears throat> from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So there we can see both doctrines. The double doctrine, right, of predestination, both election and reprobation. All right, and then I've mentioned also, if you are interested in the, the catechism, um, I pulled up three questions from the catechism, and they are questions number 23, 24, and 93. Um, but in the interest of time, let's just read number 23. Question 23. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Answer. God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. So that's, uh, those are the references I found throughout our confession and catechism. Um, hope that was helpful. Um, yeah, I think we're running pretty late. I'm not going to read this other article. It's a little, it gets a little more heady and big words and stuff, and it's long as well. So. <laughs> can you add it later so you can listen to it? Um, yeah, or maybe I'll, I could send a link if you want to read the article. But it, basically the, it's about um, further fleshing out the idea of uh, the double election, meaning both um, the elect and the reprobate, and is it positive, positive, or positive, negative? If you um, it get delves a little deeper into that, it explains it a little better. But it does have some, like I call them, two-letter words in it. I mean, two-dollar words in it. So big words, theological words. Um, hopefully, that was a good session. Was it helpful at all? Okay. Good. Well, thank you guys for coming. Is there anything else anybody wants to comment on or uh, question about before we close out here? All right. You know, they do have the second London Confession in modern English. It's yeah, much, they do. <laughs> much better. You weren't reading from it, but it's, it's much easier to understand. That is true. It's like trying to read the old King James Bible, right? It gets a little sticky at times. Uh, all right, um, Don, will you close us in prayer? Sure. Uh, most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the ability to worship you, to come and study your principles. We thank you for uh, your divine sovereignty. We thank you that you have... Uh, elected us into your kingdom, that you've opened our hearts. Uh, you've given us a, a, heart, a living heart in place of a heart of stone. We do pray for our families, that you would be bringing every one of our children and our grandchildren and great-grandchildren 
to a saving knowledge of Christ, that you would be opening their hearts. You know, ones within our own church family here that have sons and daughters and uh, children that are not walking with you and not accepting you. We pray you would be working on their hearts uh, and to bring and will bring them in your good time into your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.